Well, take your Bible, turn to to Acts chapter 22. I was uh, talking to a pastor friend of mine earlier this week, and he told me that his favorite Sunday is the Sunday after Easter. And I thought, what an interesting comment. And he said the reason that his favorite Sunday is the Sunday after Easter is because he still lives. And there's no down after Easter Sunday because Jesus is risen from the grave. And so there's no feeling of like, oh man, I wish we could go back because every day is a new day in Christ, amen? And just that reminder of the perpetual risen Savior impact that we have every day and really every Lord's Day as we have the privilege of looking at our risen Savior. Well, today I'm going to share with you back in the book of Acts, we're going to talk about a title here of the sermon is Paul's Personal Testimony, Paul's Personal Testimony. And we're looking at Acts 22 where we left off the week before Easter and we're going to look at verses 1 through 22 together this morning. And so here's what we read is Paul's going to be standing up there at the temple. He's been arrested and uh, they, they, he got permission to speak to the crowd. That's kind of where we left off with that cliffhanger a couple of weeks ago. And then in verse one, he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were being, who were there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to them, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. 
And he said to me, go, for I will send you away, far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Father, we pray that this morning as we look at Paul's personal testimony that he gives here in Jerusalem to the Jewish people, that we would learn many, many aspects of why Paul shared what he shared, how we can learn also how to share a testimony that would be powerful, that would be pointing others to the Lord Jesus and be a personal witness for what Christ has done for me. And so I pray that this morning you would bless this time together in this text today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I think that you all know that a personal testimony is a very powerful tool. It is a, a, a mighty way to share your faith. And a personal testimony, you know, gives a lot of, of, of evidence of what God's done for you. In, in a court of law, arguments are based on material evidence and motive can have an impact. But often, it's a personal testimony that has the greatest influence on the judge or on the jury. I mean, I love telling others about Christ. Hopefully, every Christian in here today feels the same way. And I believe that one of the most effective ways to share Christ with someone else is to share with them what Jesus has done in your life. In my life as a Christian, I've learned that personal testimonies are one of the most, most common things and most influential tools in evangelism. And the Holy Spirit he never ceases to use our witness to stir up spiritual interest in others and to point them toward the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, telling others about Christ through sharing your story is not powerful because of your personal life, but it's powerful because of Jesus' life. And in sharing your testimony, you are also sharing the testimony of how great Christ is. And the only reason that you have changed is because of the perfect life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus exercised the demons out of a man into the swine, and then the swine ran into the Sea of Galilee, remember that story from Luke 8, 38 through 39, at that point, Jesus himself placed a great emphasis on that man's personal testimony. You might remember that that man wanted to go along with Jesus, but in Luke 8, 38 and 39, it says, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And so we went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Your story is authentic. It is unique. I mean, especially that man. Can you imagine? I had demons all in me, and they came out of me and went into the pigs, and they ran into the Sea of Galilee. But that man was able to share an authentic testimony, and you have a powerful testimony to share as well, right? It's versatile, and it can be used in a, in a variety of situations, from sharing with an individual to addressing a group. I mean, your testimony, it's, it's not a debate. It's not pushy. It's not fake, and it doesn't feel like religious propaganda since it's coming from your heart. And very rarely will people argue with you about your story. In fact, they're almost likely to engage and to ask clarifying questions, which in turn pushes the dialogue about Jesus to a more personal level. And if you've never thought about preparing and 
communicating your testimony, let me give you just a couple of suggestions of how to do that well. Okay, this is just for free this morning, all right? Five suggestions how to share a personal testimony. It's not even on our notes, all right? So gotta, gotta be quick to keep up with it. But number one, keep it short. Communicating too many details about your life can distract listeners from the central point, how you met Christ. So keeping it short can help with that. I would suggest two to three minutes would be a good target. Remember, the purpose of telling your story is not about you, it's about Jesus. And so clearly and succinctly communicate what he has done in your life. Many listeners have a very low tolerance for long-windedness, and so being concise helps keep people engaged. Number two, have a before, how, and after a before, a how, and an after. There should be a pretty clear timeline and logical flow to your story. Talk about your life, what it was like before Christ, and how God saved you through Christ, and what your life has been like since then. The timeline is different for everyone, of course, but it brings a sense of structure to what you're saying, and it helps keep your listener tracking. And for those of you who've been maybe Christians since childhood, be vulnerable about your struggles as, as, growing, as a growing Christian. I mean, the how may be a time when the gospel really sink in and how you understood it at a deeper level. And everyone's story is unique and there's flexibility on how to share it, but thinking in terms of a timeline can be very helpful. Number three, have a theme. Have a theme. A theme helps people walk away from your story remembering one main idea. Now, there may be many themes in your story, but try to boil it down into one major point. Loading your testimony with multiple main points makes your story sometimes muddier and hard to follow, and it's much more likely to stick with people when there's a single memorable theme. I mean, your theme could be something as simple as you were looking for satisfaction and purpose in all the wrong places, but when Jesus saved you, you found your joy and your satisfaction in Christ. Number four, clearly present the gospel. Clearly present the gospel. You want people to clearly grasp the source of your transformation, Jesus Christ. And if people aren't pointed to Christ, they'll be pointed in another direction. And that will, of course, defeat the purpose. We want them to come away from our story thinking, isn't Jesus amazing? I want Christ in my life too. Without him, I am nothing. And make sure to explain the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the person and work of Jesus Christ and how you repented and believed in him with all your heart. Number five, I would say practice, practice, practice. You should know your testimony inside and out and it ought to be delivered from your heart. You don't need any note cards or, or, or an outline in front of you. If someone asks you how your life changed, you ought to be able to share that with them in a public situation, and you ought to, you, you know, in that moment, you can't just whip out a piece of paper and read it to them, and so you should have familiarized your testimony so much in your, in your own heart that you could share it in a moment's notice. I remember as a kid growing up, I was part of many different church events, and some of those events, some of would say, hey, I want you to share your testimony. You know, there's this one particular guy, he would do that in our youth group, and he would be like, we'd be out somewhere, and he's like, hey, 
I want you to share your testimony right now. And I remember we were always nervous about doing that, but you ought to practice your testimony, whether you're doing that at church or on a mission trip or there at school or at work. It'll be a good idea. And of course, a lot of you have done this when you maybe got baptized, as we witnessed here just a month or so ago, that people write out their testimonies. But maybe it's been a while since you've really practiced how would I share the gospel clearly through my life to someone else. I really want to encourage you to maybe even do that this week. If you've been a little rusty, you could write it out and practice with a family member or a friend, and eventually you'll know it by heart. And never forget, your testimony, regardless of how spectacular or ordinary you think it is, is a story about God's character. It's about God's goodness. It's about God's power. And you are an eyewitness account to how God rescued you from sin and death through Jesus Christ and changed your life as a result. And the reason I'm talking to you about that this morning, about you giving your personal testimony, is because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. He shares his testimony. I mean, think about it. Paul was an educated man, highly educated, and he, he possessed sufficient knowledge of both religious and secular law, which helped him to offer a strong defense regarding the charges that were leveled against him. And in this situation, he could have easily used his knowledge of the scriptures to make his case. He could, he could have argued a good point, and he could have convinced all that were present about who Jesus was from Old Testament scriptures, and at times he does that. But in this particular opportunity, when he's given the, the, the chance to speak to the crowd, he chooses to divulge his personal testimony. That's where he starts. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to share with them what Christ has done for me. Again, if you'll remember from a few weeks ago, Paul was arrested. He was accused of speaking against the Jews, against the law, against the temple. In fact, they accused him of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews. And none of this was true. Nevertheless, a riot had been stirred up by the tribune, and then the, the commander, rather, as that riot was stirred up, named Lysias Claudius, had to arrest Paul, and he began to carry him back to the barracks before Paul was going to be stoned to death. And if you look back up at the end of chapter 21, just look at verse 37, it says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then that leads us up to our testimony. Again, today, this is what Paul focuses on first. He wants to tell others what Christ has done for him. And so as we look at our message this morning, I want to give you four elements of Paul's personal testimony. Number one, we're going to look at the religious zeal of Paul's former life. Number two, the life-changing encounter with Jesus. Number three, the strategic commissioning of Paul's mission. And, and number four, the authoritative vision from Jesus. And so let's start with number one this morning. Again, four elements, <coughs> excuse me, of Paul's testimony. Number one, the religious zeal of Paul's former life. And the first blank, if you are taking notes, says the initial address of his defense. 
We're looking at verse 1 and 2 here of the initial address of Paul's defense. Paul says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, so he's making a defense here, right? Paul spoke with Lysias, that Roman commander in Greek, but now he turns to the people and he wants to speak to them in the Hebrew language. And the common language of the Hebrews at that time that they would have spoken, the vernacular, would have been in Aramaic. And then so Paul starts off in verse one and he says, brothers and fathers. Now that's interesting because those are the exact same words which Stephen used earlier in his speech in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And so no doubt Stephen's speech and martyrdom had a lasting impression on Paul. And even though Paul's accusers were breathing down his neck, and even though they had accused him of defiling the temple, and even though they didn't like him and they wanted to see him gone, Paul responded with utmost respect. He called them brothers and fathers. He, he used the word brothers. It shows that Paul, in some sense, was standing in solidarity with his people. Paul was a Hebrew by birth. He was a Jew through and through, and yet he was a completed Jew. He was a born-again Christian. Paul wanted nothing more than his fellow Jews to also hear the gospel and respond in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul treated them kindly. Paul greeted them warmly. Paul greeted them like a family. Now, they were not yet part of the true family of God as believers, but Paul addresses them as brothers to affirm their common ancestry. They are all physical sons of Abraham, and therefore this made them brothers. Paul also called them fathers. He says brothers and fathers. Again, this is a way of showing respect for them, many of them, as they were leaders of the Jewish people. And so Paul uses this word fathers with respect, and he addressed the Jewish crowd in a similar way in his first missionary journey back in Acts 13, 17. Paul then says, hear the defense, verse 1, that, that now I make before you. And that word defense there, as you might have imagined, is, is the word apologia. Apologia, it's where we get our word apologetics from, to, to make a defense, to give an argument, to defend the faith. It's giving a, a vindication, an explanation, giving an answer in defense of one's position. It's the same word that we cherish and use a lot out of 1 Peter chapter 3, 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And certainly that's exactly what Paul's modeling here in Jerusalem in Acts 22. We need, to, we need to always be ready. We need to always have our testimony prepared. And we need to always be ready to give a defense of the faith, of, of the hope that's within us. And at this point, verse 2 says that the crowd became even more quiet as they want to hear what Paul has to say. They want to hear him speak because he's now speaking to them in that Aramaic language. I know it says Hebrew language, but if you look at the little note there at the bottom, it says the Hebrew dialect, which would have been probably Aramaic. Let's move on to your next blank, says the reflection on his upbringing and training. 
the reflection of his upbringing and training. Verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So Paul begins now his defense by identifying with the crowd as a fellow Jew. He was born in Tarsus, but he was brought up in Jerusalem. Many believe that he might have lived his first 10 or 11 years in Tarsus, and then when he went through his bar mitzvah to become a man, he could get more formal education. So his parents undoubtedly brought him to Jerusalem where he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the most revered rabbi of that time. And as a student of Gamaliel, Paul was educated strictly according to the law of the Jewish fathers. This means that Paul had been carefully and thoroughly instructed in Old Testament law and in the rabbinic traditions. And so he was, uh, he was a Pharisee. He, he was blameless under the law, as he says in his, part of his testimony in Philippians 3, 4 through 7. You probably remember that passage where he said, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." We know that Paul had been a strict Pharisee. He had tried his best to keep the law and to be blameless in every way. And there's only one problem with that. The problem was about his motive. His motive was pride. His sin was legalism. His heart was self-righteous. And the point that Paul's making here in verse 3 is that he used to be just like them. He is simply trying to connect with his audience, saying that what you're doing right now is what I built my whole life upon. I thought I was being zealous for God, just like you are on this very day. And then we see in verses 4 and 5, the effort Paul put forth persecuting the way. He went to great trouble to persecute the church, as verses 4 and 5 record, I persecuted this way to death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those, who, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And so here we see Paul's zeal was actually expressed in violent persecution of Christians, both men and women, whom he had handed over to death. And Paul wanted to destroy Christianity. Acts 8.3 records that, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul had been the most feared prosecutor, or persecutor, I should say, uh, from Stephen's martyrdom until his conversion. His reputation as a persecutor of Christians was well known, and Paul acknowledged that when he was reminding, he acknowledged this when he was reminding the Galatians in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my 
people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So if anybody doubted Paul's zeal and his credentials, they could call on the high priest, as this next verse says here, the council of elders, likely a reference to the Sanhedrin, and they would all be able to testify for him. They would, they would be able to confirm his story. And they knew that Paul at one time sought to travel all the way to Damascus to persecute the followers of the way. We read that also in the beginning of Acts 9 where it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so what we're learning from this first point this morning is that religious zeal is different from a true relationship with God through Christ. Anyone can be very sincere and very zealous about their religious pursuits, but they are sincere and zealous in the wrong way. If you're not sincere and zealous in your love for Christ and your obedience to Scripture, not to the rabbinic, the, the rabbinic traditions, then you're on the wrong path. Are they going through the motions of a religion or are they abiding in a relationship with Jesus? There's a big difference to being committed to a cause and being committed to Christ. And there's a difference between pushing an agenda and praising and adoring the risen Savior. There's a difference between just getting things done and accomplishing our own goals versus glorifying God and accomplishing his goals for our lives. And so let's be careful this morning not to fall into zeal without knowledge, passion without purity, and works without worship. And that moves us to our next heading, the life-changing encounter with Jesus. This is what happens to Paul. And your next blank says the confrontation of ongoing sin. Jesus is going to confront Paul directly, as you well know, and in verses 6 and 7, he talks about it specifically. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Something happened that changed Paul's life forever, and that something was a life changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul didn't go out looking for the Lord, but the Lord came for him. Paul wasn't searching for Jesus, but Jesus hunted Paul down. Paul wasn't intending to get saved that day, but God's sovereign grace poured out on Paul on the road to Damascus, changed everything. Jesus had said earlier to his disciples even in this same vein of thought that it was God who saved him. In John 15, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so Paul, in the same way, the light blinding Paul around noon on that day implies it was Christ pursuing him. And as Christ pursued him, that light, it outshone the sun even though it was noon, the light of Christ was far greater, far brighter. We read about the light of Jesus 
as well on the Mount of Transfiguration when we're told in Matthew 17 too that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Of course, we also know Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And so in this moment, Paul fell to the ground and he heard Jesus speaking to him and Jesus says to Paul at the time, going by his former name, Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a reminder that Jesus is one with his church. He is the head of the church. We abide in him and he abides in us. And all of this to say that when Paul was persecuting the followers of the way, he was persecuting Jesus. It's important for us to remember that fact. This means that when we speak, against a fellow follower of Christ, we are speaking against Christ himself. When you hurt a fellow believer, you're hurting Christ. When you mock or slander or bite and devour one another, you're speaking against the Lord Jesus. The account of Paul's dramatic conversion appears three times in Acts. And this places a great emphasis on its significance. Indeed, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was a major turning point in the church and even in world history. And so we see next in verses 8 and 9 the revelation of the risen Christ. The revelation of the risen Christ. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So Paul here includes in his defense that it was Jesus of Nazareth who confronted him. Before this Jewish audience, Paul wanted to be clear about Jesus' identity. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth moved to Capernaum, was crucified in Jerusalem, was raised from the dead and ascended on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus was still alive. And he's now making his first post-ascension appearance to Paul. And knowing that some in the crowd would question whether the Lord had really appeared to him, Paul introduced the fact that others that were there with him at the time had also seen the light. And they they had seen the light, they were momentarily stunned by its brilliance, and they also fell to the ground in terror like Paul. But unlike Paul, they were then able to stand up. However, they were unable to understand the voice of the one who was speaking. So they just stood speechless in fear while Paul, or Jesus, addressed his message singularly to Paul. Jesus didn't execute Paul on the Damascus Road. Instead, he turned this terrorist into an evangelist. That's what he did. He changed the man who sought to kill the church of God to be the leader of the church of God. And if you're in Christ today, a similar thing has happened to you. He's changed you from being a servant of the devil to a servant of the Most High God. He's changed you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You were following the prince of the power of the air, but God, being rich in mercy, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ. And in verses 10 through 13, we see the instruction of how to proceed. What happens next here? And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And he said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that it is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And in, at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. So again, as Paul was overwhelmed by the glorious confrontation by the Lord Jesus, he could only humbly ask, what shall I do, Lord? Notice at this moment, he knows that he's been found out. He knows who the Lord is. He calls him, Lord, what shall I do, Master? What shall I do, Adonai? What, what shall I do as he humbles himself before Almighty God? And when we're confronted by the Lord and when we're found guilty in our sin, we are really not in a place to barter with God. This is not a time of negotiation. Repentance isn't about trying to wiggle out of a situation. Rather, it's a time to listen. And it's a time to learn. And it's a time to seek counsel from the Lord. So again, he's saying, what shall I do, Lord? Where shall I go? He, he's humbling himself before God. And so the Lord told Paul to rise and to go to Damascus where he will be told what he is to do. Notice the Lord doesn't reveal everything to Paul. He doesn't usually reveal everything to us at once, but rather it's one step at a time. The life we live is a life of faith. It is a life of dependence. It is a life of abiding every single day, being totally dependent on the Lord. And Paul finally reached his destination, but under entirely different circumstances than he could have ever imagined. And while he was in Damascus, a certain man named Ananias, whom the Lord sent to him, was going to come and tell him what's next. And though Ananias was one, uh, one of the leading Christians in Damascus, notice that Paul describes him to this particular hostile Jewish audience as a man who was devout according to the law. You see that? He says, hey, Ananias was a man devout according to the law. He was well spoken of by all the Jews there. And because of the way that Paul is identifying Ananias as a devout member of the Jewish community, it offered further support of the thought that many devout Jews had indeed embraced Christ as their Messiah. Ananias came, as we know, somewhat reluctantly at first, but he came to Paul and standing near him, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. He declared that God was going to miraculously give Paul back his sight. In that very hour, the text says that Paul's sight was restored. And like Paul, we must be willing to follow God again one step at a time, one encounter at a time, one assignment at a time. I love Psalm 119, 105. Your word is the lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We just follow him to the next person, to the next witnessing opportunity, to the next opportunity to do whatever it is God's called us to do. It's one step at a time. And as we continue to learn about the instructions Paul received of what to do next, let's move on to our third point because there's really here, number three, a strategic commissioning of Paul's mission. So we're going to hear, hear some four parts if we can. There's four subpoints to our third heading. Four parts to Paul's commission. First, the God of our fathers called Paul. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. 
This is the same language, the God of our fathers, the same language that, that God used in revealing himself to the Moses burning bush experience of Exodus 3.15. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Remember, Moses was asking, who should I say sent me? He said Yahweh at one point, but he also said the God of your fathers sent you. And that commissioning of Moses to get him ready to go back into Egypt is the same God who's now commissioning Paul. And in this connection, making this connection, Paul is saying, look, Moses was called by the God of our fathers, and in the same way, I was called by the God of our fathers. And, and making this connection again, Paul's highlighting God's marvelous grace. I mean, Moses didn't deserve to hear God's voice and to be used to bring God's people into freedom, and neither did, did Moses ask for this. In fact, he had, he had run away from Egypt, and he was out in the wilderness, and he wasn't necessarily planning on his own to go back, but then God hunted him down. And he says, I want you to go back and set my people free. Tell them the God of our fathers. And so as Paul's using that language in a similar way, he's saying, hey, I was headed out of Jerusalem. I was going to do something else. But the God of our fathers, he called me. He stopped me in my tracks. And he called me to, to set his people free. Did Moses or Paul deserve such grace? Did Paul deserve the privilege of proclaiming God's liberty to the nations? No. But both men were entirely sought out by God and dependent on his matchless grace. Second, another part of his commissioning is that God appointed Paul to see the righteous one. He appointed Paul to see the righteous one. Again, in verse 14, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. So again, we're remembering Moses heard directly from God at the burning bush, and now Paul's hearing directly from Jesus, the righteous one. This is also an allusion to the Old Testament, moving maybe on from, from Exodus to the book of Isaiah. And I think Paul is just demonstrating some continuity between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. He's the same God. And he's saying, hey guys, in the book of Isaiah, there's a reference to this righteous one as the obedient servant who was wounded for our transgressions. The Jews should have known that. The righteous one was going to be a reference to the coming Messiah. As Isaiah 53, 5 states, that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then in Isaiah 53, 11, it continues and says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one... Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so again, there's a connection that Paul is making here, and Peter had made that same connection earlier, referring to Jesus as the righteous one back in Acts 3.14, when he said, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Stephen had made the same connection, referring to Jesus as the righteous one in Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered? I mean, the only way for a person to be made righteous would be through the righteous one, not through our religious effort 
or not by obeying the law. Paul's life and ministry would be devoted to proclaiming this message about the righteous one. And so then Paul is pointing out that Judaism, rightly understood, should culminate in faith in Jesus, the righteous one, of whom Isaiah spoke and of whom spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus. A third part of his commissioning would have been C, there in your outline. God called Paul to be his witness to everyone. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for him, the righteous one, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so this witness would give an eyewitness testimony to people of all ethnicities and social classes. And he told the Corinthians that he was compelled to preach the gospel message. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, as you know, he says, for I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. Peter and John had said earlier in Acts 4.20, for we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. And so in the same way, Paul here has to be a witness for all people. And you and I are called in a similar way to be ambassadors for Christ today. We've received God's power to be his witnesses, and we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ And we are able to go as born-again believers and to tell it on the mountain. And we're supposed to be going into the highways and and to the byways to tell people about Jesus. We're we're to sing his praises in the morning and in the noontime. And we're to reverberate the glories of God in our testimony. We, We are to reflect on the goodness of God in all that we do. We are to preach and to proclaim, to implore, to instruct, to declare, to broadcast and announce the glories of Christ and his saving work. And this leads us to our fourth part of Paul's commission, D, in your outline. Paul Paul was instructed to be baptized, verse 16. And now, why do you wait? So now he's a true born-again believer. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Ananias tells Paul to get up and to be baptized, Now, baptism doesn't save you, but calling on the name of Jesus does. And Paul had already called upon the name of Jesus, and Paul had taught this clearly in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Calling on the name of Jesus is a cry for salvation, for rescue, for cleansing, and new life. And that's how Paul became a new creation in Christ that day. And yet, baptism is an expression of our faith. Baptism is a picture of our faith. Baptism is commanded of every follower of Jesus. And being baptized provides some evidence of a person who has been radically transformed and they're now willing to follow in the steps of Jesus. A literal translation of verse 16 could be read like this, arise, get yourself baptized, comma, because your sins are washed away, having called upon his name. So again, I'm not going to go to all the linguistic arguments. Some would actually take verse 16 to try to prove baptismal regeneration, 
which are, somehow they're teaching here that Paul was going to be saved by being baptized. But if you look at the grammar, it just doesn't say that. Not only that, if you look at the analogy of Scripture, all the other verses that I've just read to you, we know that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. And so by relating the circumstances, though, of his conversion, being baptized as part of his commissioning, Paul, at this point, is now turning the tables on his adversaries. He had acted only in submission to God. Therefore, indicting him was the same thing as indicting God. And his continued testimony reinforced that point. We see that in our fourth heading. He's saying here, "I, I have authority because of the vision that I have received from Jesus. And here he's going to refer to another vision that he had. Your next blank says a vision for Paul to leave Jerusalem. And he talks about this in verses 17 and 18. Now he moves on beyond the Damascus Road vision, and he moves to a second vision that he had when he talks about when I had returned to Jerusalem. So this would have been years later. I was praying in the temple I fell into a trance or a vision and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And so again, in the last part here of Paul's defense, he tells of the vision that he had in the temple years ago. And this part of the story is not in Acts 9, or at least not on the road to Damascus, but a few years later, he's sharing with them how he had been brought into Jerusalem, introduced to the Christian community, if you remember, by his friend Barnabas. And while he was in the temple on that occasion is when Paul fell into a trance. There was a vision, which is often a trance or a vision could be seen as a unique apostolic experience where he was transported beyond his normal senses into the supernatural realm to receive divine revelation. And the same word was used by Peter uh, to describe his vision in Acts 10. So after Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, he had fearlessly proclaimed his faith in Jesus at the time when he had the trance. And the unbelieving Jews at that time, they were outraged and they charged Paul with apostasy and blasphemy. And at that time, the Christians hustled Paul out of the city, and they sent him home to Tarsus. And so in some ways, Paul's vision sounds similar to Isaiah's vision of Isaiah chapter 6, where we all know well, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And after Isaiah had seen the Lord, remember he was cleansed with the coal that was taken from the altar and placed on his lips. And then Isaiah was also commissioned. Who am I and, and who shall send me? You know, and, and he says uh, that he's going to send him out. You remember that whole passage. After that, Isaiah was told that God's people would keep hearing but not understand, that they would see but not perceive that their hearts would be dull, their ears would be heavy, and their eyes would be blind. Once again, we see a continuity between Judaism and the Christian faith. Both men, Isaiah and Paul, were called through a vision and were commissioned. And both men were told that the people would reject their messages. Isaiah was told to stay in the city and face rejection, but at this a current that we're discussing now, Paul was actually told to leave. 
And yet we see in verses 19 and 20, your next blank, there was a resistance to follow Jesus' instructions. Verses 19 and 20, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned them and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. You know what he's saying here? He's like, He's telling Jesus at that time, I don't want to leave Jerusalem. I want to stay right here, and I want to preach the gospel to these people, and surely they'll be saved. He's even hinting at that through that part of his testimony at that time, God would surely use that kind of testimony to save people. So again, we have a balance here. We're saying, share your testimony, but we're also being reminded it's never your testimony that saves anyone. God has to open the hearts of people, and he has to grant repentance to those that you share with, and we're to be faithful at all times. And in this particular time, Paul makes a mistake by trying to rebuff the Lord and tell the Lord, I don't want to leave Jerusalem. I want to stay in this place, and yet no one should ever give counsel to the Lord. The only thing that you can say to the Lord is, yes, Lord. And so Paul thought that he would be convincing, but we are never to offer counsel to the Lord. And so then we see in your next blank, a new emphasis on the Gentiles. And he said to me, verse 21, go. It wasn't the time for him to die at that moment um, when he was in Jerusalem. It was time for him to be sent out to Tarsus, further away, Gentile areas. Go, for I will send you away, far away to the Gentiles. And so this calling to the Gentiles wasn't merely for the sake of safety, but as a matter of God's timing. And it was a matter of God's purpose. And not only had Paul's time not yet come, but the Lord raised Paul up for this very purpose, that he was specifically to be a witness to the Gentiles. As Ananias had said in the Acts 9, 15 through 16, um, aftermath of of Paul's conversion, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a cho chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now notice, up to this point, everybody's been listening quietly. He hushed the crowd when he raised his arm. He shared his personal testimony to which they're probably thinking through, but much of that had been documented, so it was hard to push back and argue against. But now at the end of verse 21, when he says that God sent him far away to the Gentiles, it was the mention of the Gentiles, that the mob's suppressed emotion erupted. Look at verse 22, where it says, up to this word, they listened to him, they then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So the problem is the Judaizers were holding too tight to their Judaism. Instead of being willing to take their eyes off of Moses, you know, Abraham off of Moses, off of prophets of old, which many they persecuted, and to look to Christ, who was the ultimate prophet, and to think about the implications of the gospel being for not just God's chosen people, but all those who would be grafted in, they couldn't stand it. And we're going to look more at that next week. But for our take home today, I want us to see three applications that stand out about Paul's testimony. Number one, we can learn from Paul's calmness. We can learn from his calmness. In this intense moment, Paul responds with meekness gentleness and compassion. 
He doesn't respond with anger. He doesn't attack. He reasons. And when you are in a pressure-filled conversation, ask God to help calm you and give you grace to speak the message with gentleness and respect. Number two, we can learn from Paul's courage. In the face of opposition, Paul didn't bend. He stood his ground. And many Christians remain calm, but that's because they often cave in and fail to speak the truth when under pressure. We need to be both truth and love. And only churches that love people and stand firmly on the gospel against the winds of the culture will have anything to offer to this broken world. Three, uh, third, uh, we can learn from Paul's calling. Paul knew his assignment. It was to proclaim the good news. And that's our job too. On this particular occasion, the crowd was enraged against the apostle. On other occasions in Acts, people responded to his words in faith. And we're not responsible for the results of what happens, but we are lovingly to proclaim the good news. We are just as responsible to share it faithfully. Do you know why I think a lot of Christians don't share their testimony? It may be that they don't have one. If you have a testimony, then you can't help but to speak about what Christ has done in your life. And that might be the most powerful tool that God would use to help you reach out to others. But it's never about you. It's always about the message of the gospel. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ or you try to put together a testimony and you're like, you know what, I'm not really sure that I've been truly born again. We would love to talk to you about that even on this morning after we sing our final song. We'll have a few people right over here where we'd love to talk with you about how you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you are a Christian, I encourage you to practice your testimony, to use it even sometime this week when you have an open invitation about a conversation that you would jump to the opportunity if God provides for you to share your personal testimony with somebody else. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to just be here in your word and to be able to learn from what Paul shared on that day back when he was arrested in Jerusalem. And I pray, God, that you would just encourage us as we, as we want to be bold. We want to be filled with truth and with love. We want to have grit and we want to have grace. And I pray, God, that you would help us think through how we could have a certain respect and appreciation, that you would give us the words to speak when we know not what to say. And I pray that, most of all, we would have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of the religion of the world and all of the upbringing in church doesn't save us. We need an encounter with the living Savior and we can have that at any moment through your word. And so I pray that you would open up our hearts today and that we would see these truths in a new light and that you would encourage us to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.